Lord, as it says in verse 13 of our passage this morning, pray that you will let us hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Please enable us to take this message to heart. Give us open ears and willing hearts, we pray. Amen. Philadelphia was a city that was founded by the Greeks sometime after 189 BC. Life for the inhabitants of the city was a life of uncertainty. In fact, at different times throughout its history, Philadelphia's inhabitants didn't actually inhabit the city. The city's location meant that it was perfectly situated to take the Greek language and the Greek culture to the people of the East. And so some people have described it as the gateway to the East. It is the second last city that is covered in the book of Revelation. Although its location had its advantages, it also came with hidden dangers. See, the area around uh, Philadelphia was susceptible to seismic activity. There were volcanoes around, and as we'll see, there were earthquakes that it had to deal with. In 17 AD, an earthquake devastated Philadelphia and forced the inhabitants to flee the city. And many of them opted to camp, to live in the surrounding lands for fear of crumbling walls and buildings. Many of them lived there longer term. Philadelphia also had its name changed three times, either to honour the emperor of the day or to distance themselves from the emperor. This no doubt caused headaches for those compiling the UBD Refidex and Google Maps of the first century. Whilst the Philadelphian church may have lived amidst uncertain surroundings, this letter from our Lord Jesus shows them that they can be certain of their salvation. They can be certain of the future that Jesus has for them. Jesus reminds the church of Philadelphia that their certainty is grounded in himself. And he does this by reminding them of who he is and what he does. We see that in verse 7 where he introduces himself, where he introduces himself under particular titles says to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. By using these titles, Jesus is reminding his church of his deity. The Lord says, uh, right throughout the book of Isaiah and the prophet Isaiah, we, we see that God is referred to as holy. Isaiah 6, three times, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the Lord of Israel 
describes himself as the Holy One of Israel. In Isaiah 41, verse 14, it says, I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. The Holy One is a reference to God himself. It's also a title of hope for the coming servant, the coming Messiah. We find in the Gospels, the Holy One is a title given to Jesus. In John chapter 6, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The title, The True One, also speaks of Jesus' deity. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, we see John saying, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And then we find this reference in the letter to Philadelphia of the key of David. What's that all about? Again, that is a, a reference to Jesus' authority and specifically his authority to admit people into the kingdom of God. Again, in Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and no one shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. Or as Jesus himself says in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Why does Jesus choose these titles as his way of introducing himself? We see that these titles aren't included at the start of Revelation where John sees the first vision of Jesus. Vision that he has taken bits of to speak to the different churches throughout the letter. Well, I think introducing himself this way is an incredibly loving thing for Jesus to do. The Philadelphian church is likely to have included many Jews who have been expelled from the Jewish synagogue. And I can only imagine the taunts the church must have received from their Jewish family and friends. That blasphemer you follow is not the Messiah. God doesn't love you. He loves us. By Jesus introducing himself as he does at the start of this letter, he shows his love for his church. And he continues these words of love in verse 8. He says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn 
that I have loved you. Now, Pete already flagged for us that this word of knowledge that is used here is a deep word. It's a word that refers more than just a cerebral knowledge of something. Let me tell you what it is not like. It's not like a husband who's doing his best to coach his wife through birth pains. Okay? The wife says to the husband, it hurts. And the husband says, I know. <laughs> no, he doesn't. I mean, certainly he can, he can see the sweat and the pain on his wife's face. He can hear her screams and he can rightly conclude she is in pain. It hurts. But he doesn't know what it's like to go through that pain. He doesn't have the knowledge that comes from the shared experience of something similar. Not so with Jesus. Jesus' knowledge of the Philadelphian believers is an intimate knowledge. It's a knowledge that's made possible through shared similar experiences. Notice the three things Jesus highlights for us in verse 8. He says he knows they have little power, they have kept his word and not denied his name. Those last two are the same thing, just put in the positive and in the negative. Now I'm sure many of us know what it is like to have little power, to feel hopeless or overpowered by something or someone. We know what it's like to, have, to not have the strength or the power to resist what is affecting us. We know what it's like to say, no one listens to me, or I just can't get that job no matter what I do. We know what it's like to say, I can't seem to resist that temptation. Or, I can't change the way I'm being treated. Friends, the good news for the church in Philadelphia and for us is that Jesus knows what it's like to have little power too. In fact, he chose to know what it's like to have little power. Philadelphia, uh, Philippians 2 tells us that though Jesus was God, he chose to become a man. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus knows what it's like for you to be you. He knows what it is to struggle. But he also knows what it is to endure that struggle, to remain faithful through that struggle. And he says the Philadelphian church has remained faithful 
They have remained faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had obeyed the gospel word and they had guarded the gospel word, the true gospel. And this is despite the hostility of the Jewish synagogue around them. The synagogue that Jesus labels as the synagogue of Satan. Because the church confesses Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, they've been kicked out. They've been removed and rejected by their own people. Maybe you know the pain of rejection. Jesus knows that too. Jesus knows what it's like to be on the outer with those you care about the most. If you loved God, you'd love me, said Jesus. You're demon-possessed, they replied. Father, forgiveness, forgive them, Jesus cried. Crucify him, they shouted. See, the true people of God love and accept his son. They love and accept Jesus. To those who do not accept Jesus, Jesus rejects the synagogue of Satan. Or as he says in John, their father is the devil. For those who accept Jesus, Jesus allows them to experience his love. And in verse 8, that comes in the form of an open door. It says, Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. And this door, this open door, has a twofold meaning. Certainly, it's, it's a door that's open to salvation for the believers in Philadelphia. But it's also a door of missionary opportunity. Look with me at the language of an open door in Acts. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Open door language is language of responsibility and opportunity. Not only are we to trust in Jesus ourselves, we're also to share our faith and share our lives with those around us. We are to pray that they will also come to trust in Jesus as their saviour. What opportunities has God opened for you? What opportunities has he opened for us as a church? Opportunities to share your life with people that don't know Jesus. Opportunities to share your faith with those who do not know Jesus. Conversations you can have with people that go deeper than just the weather. 
What relationships do you have with people where you're at a point where they trust you to go deeper? Opportunities we have to share our faith in our life with our kids, with our workmates, our friendships group at school or university. Are we willing to risk exclusion from these relationships for the sake of people's salvation? Are we willing to offer what little power we have to obey the gospel and to guard it, to keep it true? Are we willing to risk these things to remain faithful to his word and to the name of Jesus? Let's be encouraging one another to see the opportunities that God is putting before us and to take these opportunities, trusting the Holy Spirit to work through them for his glory. Jesus encourages the Philadelphians that their faithfulness is worth it because Jesus himself will keep those who are his safe through judgment. Verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. We see an hour of trial mentioned by Jesus in his time on earth. This hour of trial that Jesus is referring to is the time when he is going to come to the earth and judge the earth. In the gospel, Jesus speaks in terms of the hour in two ways. Firstly, Jesus uses the term for his own hour of trial that is coming, his own time of testing and judgment. John 17, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The second way the hour is used is to use to refer to Jesus return to the earth where he will judge all mankind. We see Jesus' words in Matthew 24. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were, they were unaware until the flood came and swept over them all. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. We see another phrase used 
in verse 6. The phrase, to try those who dwell on the earth. Now we see that this phrase in the book of Revelation is used to refer to all of mankind. It's a phrase that is used to talk about loyalty. It, it refers to people who live in opposition and rebellion to God. People who are earthly in their loyalty rather than heavenly in their loyalty. For the coming hour of trial, all mankind throughout history will be judged. God will judge the world through our Lord Jesus Christ. Yet Jesus promises to keep his people safe. Now, I think to understand this, it's, it's helpful to think of Noah's ark. Now, not the Noah's ark that's depicted on the walls of a nursery. Noah's ark that we read about in Genesis 6 through to 8. It's the story when God judges mankind in the form of a flood. But those that are kept safe are God's righteous people who are secure in the ark that God has provided for them. Though they are going through the judgment waters around them, they are kept safe. Jesus is able to bring his church through judgment because he himself has passed through the waters of judgment. Jesus has endured his hour of trial and testing. He's gone through our judgment on the cross and he has offered a way of grace so that we might be found in him. And those who are in Jesus like the ark, are kept safe through the judgment. Those who are outside of Jesus will experience the judgment in full force. Now the picture of Jesus bringing his people through judgment doesn't stop there, because he has somewhere he brings them to. He brings them to new life. He brings them to the presence of God. To the one who conquers, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God, from my God out of heaven and my new, own new name. See, while Noah's ark brought those who went through an open door through judgment, it also brings those who are kept there through an open door to new creation and new life. This is the same for those who are found in Jesus. Jesus brings us somewhere. He brings us to new creation, to new life, to the presence of God. 
And Jesus promises the faithful church in Philadelphia that that is what they have coming to them, that he will bring them safely through judgment to the presence of God. Once again, they will receive a new name, but this time the name is the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Never again will they suffer the ridicule and pain of rejection. Never again will they be forced to live outside of the city. They will be taken into the city, not just into the city, into the presence of God, the temple of God, and they will be made steadfast and secure there. Friends, that is true for us as well. Jesus promises to bring us, us who are found in him, who have accepted him. He promises to bring us through the coming judgment. For those who are in Jesus, the time when Jesus returns isn't going to be a time of devastation. It's not going to be a time of fear and trembling. It will be a time of safety. It will be a time of security. It will be a time of joy. Jesus promises to bring us through that time to a place of life. I wonder if anything we've said today has hit home for you. Maybe right now you're experiencing that little power. Maybe now you really know what it's like to be rejected and kept at a distance. Friends, I encourage you this morning to take the message to the faithful church of Philadelphia and take it to yourself. Hear the words of Jesus. Jesus knows what it is for you to be you. He knows what it is to endure. Do you know him? Have you trusted in him? If you do know Jesus, if you have trusted him to keep you safe through judgment, then I pray this word is an encouragement to you. I pray that through it you'll be encouraged to stay faithful to the gospel. You'll be encouraged to keep it, to obey it, to guard it. And I pray that you'll be encouraged to be looking for opportunities, looking for those open doors. The times where you can share your life with someone and through that share your faith with someone. I encourage you to take those opportunities when they come. If you do not yet know Jesus, I would encourage you to get to know him. And I think you can do that through two things. 
Grab a Christian friend, someone you know who loves Jesus, and grab a Bible. Put the two together. Say, can I read the Bible with you? Will you help me through this? If you don't have someone you could do that with, then come and have a chat with me. We'll sort something out. I think we could all agree that we live in an uncertain world, friends. A world that is uncertain of its identity, uncertain of its morality, and uncertain of what the future will bring. Rejoice and know, friends, that in a world of uncertainty, we can be certain that Jesus knows us, that he loves us, and he will bring us safely to God. Let me pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we worship you today. We praise you for who you are. We give thanks for what you have done. Lord, we are encouraged by this world. This word that you have given to a faithful first century church. We pray that the words here will encourage us, will strengthen us, will give us certainty and give us courage to face what the future brings us. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.